uh, if you say something that you think you shouldn't say publicly, uh, just uh, realize that you shouldn't say that publicly and let me know and I'll take it out. Like saying I'm, I flirt with <laughs> in, any, anything that you're like, maybe I shouldn't say this publicly because it'll get me fired. Uh, just let me know and we'll pull it out. Okay. Well, working at an AG university to talk about postmodernism is itself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. No, we might just, let's just end this right here. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me. I was, I was as shocked as anybody to see somebody actually take this on at an AG school. I was like, I remember as a kid being told that postmodernism is the biggest threat to Christianity. Like I was, I remember hearing this and then I was like, oh, somebody actually is engaging with what Smith is saying. Yay. Look, look what happened, Caleb. You flirted with postmodernism, Matt flirted with postmodernism, and now you guys aren't even credentialed. Like it's the biggest threat to the AG. <laughs> I can guarantee you my postmodernism is not why I'm not credentialed. <laughs> but you also host a, a podcast called Barely Saved. I think you're trying, you're trying to say something in an implicit way. <laughs> uh, that is very much true. <laughs> that postmodernism, I tell you. Don't let your, your daughters date postmodernism. Yeah, well, we'll talk about postmodernism in a bit. But to me, the wildest thing about postmodernism is that I was always told it would lead to relativism and that uh, you would just choose your own truth for yourself. And then we saw what happened in the results of the 2020 election. And I'm just sitting here like all of the things that all of the people told me postmodernism is going to cause. They are guilty of now. No, that is the truth. That to me, that's like the wildest thing that's like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to fully embrace postmodernism, not relativism. Yeah. Not, not anti-foundationalism, but postmodernism. I, I don't really know of any self-respecting postmodern philosophers or theologians who outright says they're, they're relativist. In fact, I mean, Smith will say he's a relativist, but it's a very qualified relativism. It's, it's, so benign it's like i don't know if that's relativism i think you're just trying to be provocative here um yeah not the type of relativism that we think of like simple subjectivism or whatnot that's that's how you sell books though is by telling everybody hey i'm a relativist yeah that's what i should have done (laughs) i mean a hundred dollars is how you don't sell books yeah yeah and 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 i get no money for it (laughs) (laughs) I work free for this one. (laughs) Welcome to the Barely Saved Podcast, where we have the discussions real Christians don't have. Here's your hosts. Caleb. I'm Caleb. Oh, I'm Mike. (laughs) In a smooth jazz (laughs) union. All right, so we have Yoon on the podcast with us today, and I have been interacting with Yoon on Facebook for a while, but this is my first time actually like talking to him semi in person, which is kind of cool. Uh, Yoon, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself so that way uh, we know why you're smarter than all of us and why we should listen to you? <laughs> Besides your very impressive library in the background? 
Um, yeah, so I'm currently uh, Associate Professor of Philosophical Theology at Southeastern University. Uh, as Mike asked, where is that? Um, it is in Lakeland, Florida, uh, that is right between Tampa and Orlando. I've been uh, at Southeastern in various capacities since 2011. Wow, that's been a long time. Um, I, I, I'm a triple graduate, I think. Yeah, I, I transferred in. I was in the military, got saved. Um, and then I transferred to Southeastern, got my bachelor's in practical theology there. Um, flirted with Calvinism because I'm Korean. So basically, I have to be a Calvinist or Presbyterian. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I, I really think that I am the only non-Presbyterian in my family. Um, anyway, so after that, I, I went to Reform Theological Seminary to get my master's in theology. But by uh, God's divine providence, however you want to take that, um, I went, I transferred back to Southeastern, finished my master's there uh, in theology, completed my certificate in theology at Reform Theological Seminary, and then uh, went to the University of Aberdeen uh, to get my PhD in divinity uh, and focusing on postmodernism and uh, the thoughts of James K.A. Smith and reformed epistemology. And along the way, I decided, hey, why not get a master of divinity while I'm doing my PhD? And so I did that. I don't know why my wife let me do it. Uh, we were all crazy back then. And so I, I finished that along the way. So I'm a tri triple graduate of Southeastern. I have stayed here. Uh, I, I love it. My my colleagues are incredible. I'm just a little peon in this world, and I get I'm just blessed to to converse with them and and pick their brains here. So I don't know how how I got here. Literally, it was just God's blessings. So so you've been there since 2011. Yeah, uh, that was the time that I um, I came back as a transfer graduate student and haven't left. I was also here as an undergrad from 05 to 07. Okay. So you went there in 2011. I was a freshman in high school. <laughs> oh, I just turned 40. So <laughs> that dates me a little bit. I mean, Mike also is the youngest person on this podcast. So I can see the baby, the baby fat. I know. It's there. It's the lack of beard. I just want to grab, like, grab your cheeks through the screen. <laughs> I would, well, I look even worse right now. I'm on day eight of COVID. So normally I look a little better. <laughs> well, you look good for somebody who has COVID. So that's good. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> so what do you, what do you teach? What you already said, you said you teach what, theological or philosophical theology. So uh, my bread and butter, um, I, I teach intro to ethics just because it's one of the like what we call common core courses that every student has to take. Mm -hmm. um, I have a mentor uh, here who also teaches ethics. So we're, we both of us are kind of are the primary ethicists, which is interesting because ethics is not my um, my research specialty, mm -hmm. just a general um, competency. But I have a special place in my heart for ethics because it was through eth ethics at Southeastern as an undergrad that woke me up from my, uh, my fideism and helped me to realize the robustness of the faith, uh, the critical uh, tradition of, of Christianity that um, 
awoke the desire in me to pursue graduate studies. Cool. Yeah. And I get to teach that now. So I've been blessed. So a crocodile at a Florida zoo breaks out of a van and makes a dash down the road in a wild video. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm watching the video. Mike, what are, what are your thoughts when you hear that a crocodile broke out the back window of a van and made a dash down the road? Um, I think 10 out of 10. Amazing moment in nature history. Go, crocodile. You're my hero of the week. If you gotta scroll down, the top video is not the video. The top video is not it. It very confused me. Especially on Newsweek. So it isn't actually a crocodile? The top video is never the video. It's always the one lower down. Or is this an American alligator we're just calling a crocodile because they're the same thing? Uh, no, it is a crocodile. All alligators are crocodiles. But not all crocodiles are alligators. Oh, officials at the St. Augustine Alligator Farm Zoological Park. That is a mouthful did not say what species of crocodilian it was. The park is home to more than 800 alligators and is the only zoo in the world where visitors can see all 24 species of crocodilians. Wow. Okay, so I go to St. Augustine. I see this farm of alligators. Cool, that is huge. It's a, it, it is a big boy or girl. Oh my goodness, it straight up busted that window out. On the one hand, I'm proud of the crocodile. I'm like, yes, good job for you. Go for freedom. On the other hand, I am very glad that they were able to re-catch him. Because had that crocodile actually escaped, it would not have been a happy end for that crocodile. Okay, I continued on. This is this is the problem with, yeah. It is not the first time keepers at the St. Augustine Alligator Farm <laughs> Zoological Park have had dramatic encounters with their resident reptiles. In 2020, a reptiles curator at the park, Jim Darlington, was attacked by one of the park's resident alligators. First Coast News said Darlington had been in a canoe in a swamp area of the park where around 200 alligators lived, trying to retrieve some lost camera equipment the alligator leaped out of the water in a quote feeding response darren darlington rose his arm to defend itself himself and the alligator took hold of him in its jaws darlington needed quote a bunch of stitches after he ripped his arm out of the alligator's teeth first coast news said like look i i understand i could see the 24 Right. I understand a that I can see the 24 species of crocodilian, but you know what? <laughs> think I'm good. Okay, so here's the thing, Matt. I don't think that you will be on a canoe in the swampy area of the park if you go visit. Listen, but here's the thing. If, if the staff thinks that it's a good idea to try to retrieve equipment out of the water, I don't know what else the staff thinks is a good idea. I... I love crocodiles. Uh, I would not be anywhere in a canoe in a uh, crocodile, crocodilian infested swamp, lake, whatever it is. That's good. That's going to be a solid no. Solid no. I mean, the guy, he just got his arm bit and just needed some stitches. I think you guys are exaggerating things. First off, did the crocodile bite him? Okay. Here's how that 
could have gone, though. <laughs> I mean, we all know how it could have gone, but you can always have a counterfactual that looks different. How it did go, he's fine. This is like everyday news for us Floridians. <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> Listen, I'm just saying this zoo is like three hours and 20 minutes from you, Yoon. So I, I think we might need some in-depth first-person reporting. I mean, I don't need to. I can just go to a lake just right <laughs> across Southeastern, go at nighttime, and you flash a flashlight, you'll see lots of eyes, like, lit up. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've, you know, I've gone canoeing plenty of times on our lakes here with crocodiles. I've seen them tanning. It's fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, several years ago uh, on social media, there was this, viral picture and video of this hawking alligator um i forgot the name oh yeah i've seen that yeah, one yeah that's at what's called circle bar reserve circle b uh reserve here uh in lakeland like we've gone there to just go oh. you know hiking and whatnot. yep yep just a just our resident al- alligator <laughs> they are an aza zoo so you know there this isn't like uh joe exotic Right. This ain't this ain't this ain't Crocodile King. Like this is an AZA zoo. So it's not the worst, but or have you heard of the oh gosh, what is it called? Like the reptile reptile house in like Southern Carolina, South Carolina or something like that? Do I want to? I heard about it in a it was like a stand-up comedian bit, but it's basically this dude just has like a reptile house basically and like charges admission and uh he like a cobra got out when this guy was there and there were like children and he would like feed the alligator that was in like this house with people watching and that guy ended up dying <laughs> because his uh significant other shot him <laughs> and that was like the butt that was uh it was a carolina it wasn't the reptile it wasn't the alligator first off you tell me something about South Carolina, and I know it's a wild place. Um, <laughs> like, I, uh, those of us who live in North Carolina, we just know that about South Carolina. And so we avoid it unless we're going to the beach. Well, none, none of that would shock me. So you can't, you can't visit that reptile house now, but apparently it's got some killer reviews on its yelp. Uh, but this, this crocodilian that escaped from the van... It was recaptured, um, which, again, I'm glad that it was because its mouth was still taped shut and had it managed to actually escape, would have starved to death in the wild. So I'm, I'm very glad that this crocodile was captured, uh, even though I very much applaud the attempted escape. Good for it for trying. The thing is, though, the last time we extolled uh, an animal for trying to escape like that, it's because they were likely going to the slaughterhouse. And I feel like this time it's a little bit different. Uh, that is true. The last time we talked about an animal escape story, it was it was uh, Slide the Cow. Oh, no. The last time we talked about an animal escape story was the monkeys. The dead monkeys of Pennsylvania. <laughs> right, right, right. Did, did we talk about the monkeys? Yeah. And we gave an update. But then it was the cow. But, but the, with the cow, we were like, oh, that's great. The monkeys were like, I don't know how to feel about this. And then they shot them, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, it matters. They were headed to Florida, too, for the record. It's like Harambe Volume 2. <laughs> Harambe the Multitude. 
and the Bengals couldn't even finish it off. Good grief! Do you? I don't know if you. I don't know if you paid attention or if you saw it, uh, but there was the monkeys that were on their way to Florida uh, to be lab monkeys, and they the trailer that they were in was crashed into, and three monkeys escaped in uh, Pennsylvania. They were later captured and euthanized, which was just a sad end to that story. In Pennsylvania? Yes, in Pennsylvania, because they flew into JFK uh, from Asia and then were being transported to Florida to quarantine. I thought that was a a similar story in Florida where some monkeys or maybe at least one monkey or chimpanzee uh, escaped and was like running around in the neighborhood. I mean, that happens. I feel like that happens every other week in Florida and barely even makes national headlines anymore. <laughs> this is why I don't like leaving Florida. I love Florida. It's it's wild. You know, it's the wild west, wild east. You gotta you gotta have the crazy. Florida is an exciting place. That is that is very fair. You could almost have a a weekly rando exotic animal escape. <laughs> yes, I, I I can see that. <laughs> all right so we brought yunan because he wrote a book postmodernism or pentecostalism postmodernism and reformed epistemology james k.a smith and the contours of post of a postmodern christian epistemology and in the past on this podcast we have said that we are postmoderns me and matt have at least and have you know and I think I just loot myself in with you guys. Decried the errors of modernity. Right, because you don't know any better? No. <laughs> I'm a great follower. So I would like to I would like to open this conversation, Caleb, if I, if I may. Okay. All right. You, you can, but I'm concerned about where you're going to take it immediately. I am excited. This is a Facebook post. We're, we're talking about postmodernism and, and how we know things, right? Right. For those who don't know what epistemology is. Epistemology is how do we know that? Um, and uh, a postmodern epistemology is specifically, well, it's it's a reaction to a modernist epistemology, and we can talk more about that in a little bit. Because um, I was raised, we were, I would say a lot of us were raised in a modernist epistemology, even if that's not the intention. That's kind of what it is. So somebody uh, in a in a Facebook group that we might happen to all be in at least at one point said. It's sad to so see so many ministers who are influenced by the world's doctrine of religious and moral relativism. It is sad because this belief will only allow hell to open its mouth wider for the lost. Many people teach and preach to appease the sin, not to oppose it. Now, I don't know what I was thinking, <laughs> but I said, this is the most modernist post I've seen in a while. And then I put a hashtag, Christian Postmodernist. And so somebody said, you do know that one of the defining characteristics of postmodernism is an absence of God and morality, right? And then they went on, and this person (laughs) said that they have studied it for years, have been published on the subject, on how detrimental it is to a Christian culture. A Christian postmodernism is an oxymoron. I, I just want to say, first off, as you were reading that, the reaction on Yoon's face was fantastic. <laughs> it was fantastic. So, I guess, Yoon, we should probably start with 
modernism. So what, how would you describe a, a modernism epistemology? Yeah, one, I would say that relativism, the, the, the type of relativism that people are afraid of, are actually the logical end of modernism and not necessarily postmodernism. And we could, and there are many forms of postmodernisms so that uh, what we would call hypermodernism uh, hyper is a form of postmodernism. They're just the same things, but not all postmodernisms are uh, hypermodern. So kind of like with the crocodiles, all alligators are crocodiles, but not all crocodiles are alligators. Same thing with uh, hypermodernism and postmodernism. Um, so, you know, modernism arose um, depending on who we want to ask. We could say Descartes. Uh, if you asked uh, John Milbank in Radical Orthodoxy, it, it started arising with um, John Don Scotus and uh, um, uh, university, what's called University of Being that um, equated being itself with God. So kind of being and God's being a metaphysically different being and creation's being became equated. Um, but anyway, I don't want to get too technical uh, because I would think the, the um, listeners of this podcast um, uh, might get too lost. So I don't want to get lost in the weeds. But anyway, so to understand postmodernism, we have to understand modernism. And to understand modernism, we kind of have to understand uh, pre-modernity. So pre-modernity, before, um, before, let's say, Descartes, um, is that the, everyone had an enchanted worldview. Like, no one was really an atheist. Like, it was commonsensical that the world was inspirited. And this was the faith position. And it wasn't, like, it was so, such a, um, a commonsensical position that it, it wasn't even, like, I don't think it was in the forefront of their minds and they would say, you know what, let me think about what my faith position is. Hmm. No, like it was their starting point. In this way, the, the, the being of God, the being of ultimate reality per se, was the starting point that allowed for knowledge to occur. So in this way, we would say being grounded knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, and knowledge is ultimately grounded, therefore, in the faith of this being we call God. Whereas when modernity came, modernity was about the establishment of of human power, our ability to not only come to know things purely by the use of our reason, but also to conquer nature itself through science, okay? Um, So that uh, here we we get... um, uh, the idea of deus ex machina, you know, uh, God of the gaps and whatnot. Um, we have uh, conquering of the worlds as people are discovering the quote unquote new world and begin colonizing the world, right? So now Europeans are becoming not just the center of the known world in Europe, but also the whole world. And it's all part of human power. And so in terms of epistemology, the development of epistemology, whatnot, and the, the human capability of knowing, um, even the existence of God became a question mark. So that what was now more ultimate was not faith, okay? not the faith in God, not some 
metaphysical reality that makes knowledge possible, but knowledge knowledge itself and, and human ability to know, especially with certainty, becomes the root, the ground for which we can now prove the existence of whatever we want to know. In this way, uh, uh, rather than God, reason became divinized. And now if, if in this, in this uh, tradition, we can now understand why apologetics uh, became so popular, because now we, we could defend the existence of God by our, our reason. And this is why some, some schools of apologetics, like presuppositionalism of Cornelius Van Til, would say that, you know, things like classical apologetics or evidential apologetics gives away, you know, the common ground, um, gives away authority to reason. And I think it's really important to say in the apologetics realm, like that has been effective for many people. The the reasoning of of modernism and and looking at the the things that we can know, um, the things that we can quote unquote prove, um, and, and talking about those things has been effective for some people. I mean, we can't deny that. Is it the best way? It, I, the best way is a bad question, but is it the only way? Absolutely not. But, and obviously we're going to keep going and get there, but yeah, I just want to make sure that when we talk about it, 100%, some people have been incredibly swayed and persuaded by those arguments. Yeah. I- so, so would that be like the apologetics arguments? Would that be like Tim Keller's reason for God and uh, some of uh, Ravi Zacharias's apologetics work? William Lane Craig, yeah. Is that William Lane? Okay, okay. Let me make sure I'm tracking. No, I, I I like apologetics. I think there's definitely value for apologetics. Um, but so if we want to get technical, um, again, if we focus on the rationalism of modernity. We, we can often think that um, rational defense is the ground, perhaps, for faith. Uh, we have to know these things in order to have faith or whatnot. Right. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, the, it's, it's very nuanced. There's, there's a subtle, I think, posture that one can have when one approaches ap- apologetics from the perspective of a of pistic or faithful um, uh, submission to God compared to a rationalist paradigm where the only way we can have faith in God is that we can prove God's existence. Right. There, there's almost, I, I say this lightly, but there's almost a lack of belief because we've moved from belief to knowledge. Yeah. And, and in that world, in that, especially in, in the Christian tradition, in that type of world, then doubt definitely becomes right uh, scary it's problematic oh and to to go the next step when we talk about deconstruction deconstruction is terrifying to people who need the answer so when you talk when you hear people talking about deconstruction it's because generally they're coming from this point of view right if if you will take if you take a single brick out of the house the whole thing crumbles. Yeah. And that's incredibly problematic. So yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. So in modernity, um, reason gets divinized. It becomes an idol. And so if there is a limit to reason, if you, we can't know with certainty or we, you know, we can't prove what we believe, then 
God, this reason, is, is now threatened, you know, and therefore you can't doubt. Um, it's, it's crumbling, uh, you know, it's, it's just crumbling everywhere. And, and I think and what postmodernity is doing is saying it's a postmodernity is, is a return to what it means to be fully human. Mm-hmm. Um, and what postmoderns are saying about what it means to be fully human sounds very much like what pre-moderns were saying, what scripture seems to be saying, that we are embodied people. And therefore, we can't obtain to some abstract uh, universality, some kind of 100% epistemic certainty or whatnot. We all see from perspectives, especially because the use of reason is mediated through particular languages. Right. Like, there is no universal language that we speak and there is no universal meaning uh, that we can that we all um, use. And there, we can't even um, arrive at universal meaning, absolute meaning within the author, because when the author speaks and the words leave the, the, the mouth of the speaker or the, the pen of the writer or even the nonverbal cue or cues from, uh, you know, the person, the communicator, there is a, this, this fusion of, of this horizon of uh, different meanings from the person, the reader, the receiver, and the, uh, and the speaker, the author, that gets infused so that there is, so that there is never a pure uh, transference of meaning, but there is some type of modification and creation of meaning. And I would, I would push back a little bit to what you said on just on one particular piece, and, and that's with the language piece, because I do think there is a place in our human Soci- socio-consciousness, where there is a language that we all speak, and that would be math. I don't speak math. Get out of here. For the most part, the language of math is pretty solid, and if it, it transfers um, spoken language barriers pretty well. The symbols continue. Like If you're talking linguistics, it, it, it's very, very firm. And modernism, to a certain extent, the way it flourished was built on the work of Newton and um, his ilk because math. And so, yeah, there, I think and it's a silly pushback to a certain extent, but I do think that modernism has a place um, in our culture because with math, it's great. It it actually helps out a lot. Um, And I think it's silly when people are coming against postmodernism and saying, well, they just want two plus two to equal five. It's like, Listen, I you're you're wrong because that's not how it works. But I do think that that is a place where we have a very consistent way to talk about things, and we talk about them the, the same across all languages. But that's it. <laughs> Any step you move forward from there, it changes completely. You know, so there are certain um, areas of reality that is more stable, and math is definitely one of them. Um, no, I'm not a mathematician. I'm not a physicist. Whatnot. Those. That's not my area of uh, even general competence. But this is what I would say: uh, postmoderns, uh, many postmoderns who are not actually relativists, which there aren't that many, um, at least in the scholarly realm, um, would say that yes, like math represents. Uh, well, one. So let me go back. Uh, so many postmoderns scholars will will not deny uh 
ontological objectivity. And so they are what's called ontological realists, as in in the being of existence, there are things that exist and therefore act as bar- a, a range, like barriers, a limit to our interpretation so that we don't have interpretation mania, but the, and it does provide some, some uh, range of different interpretation, but it doesn't allow for interpretive mania where every uh, interpretation is now uh, equally valid, okay? So math and any other objective reality act as a, a parameter, a limitation of a parameter of, 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 of interpretations, okay? And so I think we can say that there's a, a form of universality that we could, that, that postmoderns could agree with moderns. However, this is where it gets a little bit more um, complicated. When we, when we approach truth from a rationalist perspective, it's all very much propositional and abstract, okay? I mean, it's platonic. You know, yeah. abstract truths are are therefore universal. It applies everywhere. This, this, mm-hmm. this is the forms. Okay, postmoderns by bringing things to back to the body, to our situated locales, our situated context, our situated languages, and even now also the affections, emotions, feelings, moods, mm-hmm. which are not universal, and also what how we live out the truth tells us that it doesn't like saying that two plus two equals four is trivial. Right. Like it could be trivial, part of a trivial pursuit for little two-year-olds, you know, Hey, little Johnny, what is two plus two equals four? You know, two plus three equals, you know, what's postmoderns would say, what's more important is what you do with truth. Right. Two equals two, you know, so what if you, uh, if you have really great mathematical truths, but you use that, mathematical knowledge to to devise weapons of mass destruction you know so postmoderns would say like somebody like um martin heidegger uh would oppose uh, immanuel kant's idea that um the phenomenal world is out there and you know the objective world is out there and you have the subjective mind uh these categories of understanding these filters these grids to understand the, the phenomenal world, you know, and create this, this uh, dualism, this dichotomy between the knowing subject and the known objective world, the phenomenal world, Martin Heidegger would say, no, 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 we're never a, a, a subject that peers into the world. We are always involved in the world. Right. We are always at work. And hence he, he, uh, he uses this word Dasein, uh, which translates to something like being in the world. We're never a perceiver outside peering into the world. And as beings in the world, we are always involved. Things are there for us. We care uh, about the things in the world. Um, and so, yeah, so we're in a rationalist paradigm. It's much easier to say, you know, what's in most important for knowledge is propositional truth, right. timeless, universal truths. And postmoderns would say, if you do that, you can lead to injustice. Because propositional universal truths can be used as a blunt weapon. But what's more important than propositional truth is how one uses it. And that, and hence for postmodernism, in, in basically every postmodern philosophy, justice is a um, justice and violence are, are key themes. 
and and something that you talk about early on in the book is that the shift from modernism to postmodernism is a is a shift from looking at ourselves as autonomous beings uh, to looking at ourselves as languaged beings. Oh, language. I think that's a big thing, um, is because the way that we understand things is through language, um, and we don't have the capability to have an understanding of truth apart from language. We are not autonomous because we're bound by those cultures and, and all of those things. Yeah, and we receive a language, and we change language. When, when y'all, you know, um, reach my age, you'll realize you ain't cool anymore. <laughs> the fact that I said, uh, ink, about right? that. <laughs> <laughs> language always evolves. If I can say that word in a Christian podcast. Um, I, th- I think it's fine. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we receive language as a tradition and every linguistic community uh, brings its own um, range of meanings you know when when you 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 know when when you say something is bad it's bad when i was growing up in the 90s when something was bad it was good you know wow that's so bad you know <laughs> yeah i mean the word changes based on inflection yeah right and and there's there's so much behind the language of the thing that's uncommunicated in the, in there and not and not just that so language itself already carries a narrative tradition and every narrative brings this is jamie smith's idea james k.a smith's idea every narrative also uh carries forth uh in, embedded affections that draw that affection in the other people or even create new new affections which them they themselves are forms of knowledge for example if somebody looks at um uh, a man Somebody with, uh, with, with a, who grew up in a very loving family might see a man uh, very positively, whereas if somebody had been abused by a father figure or whatnot, may see a man and tense up or whatnot, especially if it's, you know, at nighttime or whatnot, when walking by themselves, whatnot, right? So, so knowledge itself is not merely propositional. It, it's tied to the narrative that we have embodied, and to be called in the West or even in the East for a baby, for, for a parent to say, congratulations, you have a daughter. That, that term daughter already carries certain narrative, narratives about what she can and cannot do. Yep. You know, and with that carries the, the moods and the emotions that are appropriate to how a, a girl, a woman ought to behave and live out her life. So I think we've got the, the primer here. Um, so it, it just brief, well, as briefly as possible. Um, what are some of the postmodern Christian Christian epistemologies that you observe and talk about in the book? 
don't don't tell us the whole book obviously we want people to go get it but uh <laughs> give us give us some some highlights something that you know would intrigue people to to go out and get that kindle version yeah um because the kindle version is cheaper <laughs> And I have to say, I got the book from the manufacturer that does the Adobe Digital Editions. And I will say, even though I got the 30% discount because I got it that way, I would have rather got the Kindle because the app is just clunky and difficult to actually engage with. No, I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, no, it's fine. It just crashes all the time. (laughs) Apps these days. Yeah, so in, in a nutshell, uh, one, to, to assuage the, the fears of, of Christians who have been told that postmodernism is, is the, the demon, um, you know, the, the enemy to our faith, I would argue, one, a Christian postmodernism recognizes that there is a, uh, the objective reality and that we can't, so mind independent reality, we don't create reality with our thoughts and that we can know this reality, but not merely as peering into and in, through an interpreted lessness, okay, and, and without interpretation, um, but that we ourselves, we draw all of our background in our in our knowing process. Um, In this way, we need to tend to uh, our emotions, the stories we tell and what we do so that the truth that we live out, again, it's a living out. It's not enough for Christians to only care about mind independent truth because demons the famous passage goes, the demons know, and they yet they shudder. They know objective reality about God, but they hate the truth. So merely knowing truth is not enough. Postmodernism recognizes that knowledge occurs through particular languages, particular contexts, particular cultures, particular ways of living, particular rules of life, and that therefore we must show uh, we can't project our, 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 um, our understandings into their life, which would be, in a way, kind of ethically violent to who they are. We want to, we want to allow them to speak to us. Right. And so, um, so for Christian postmoderns, we recognize that truth is there. We can know it. However, to know it, occurs from our own context. Therefore, we need to be open to others who speak and know from their context because my context is always limited, which means my knowledge is always going to be limited. Would would you say, and, and this is just a, a general question, would you say that, that the idea that you, you, we've talked about relativists and a Christian postmodernist would, by definition, reject relativism to a certain extent, right? Just because of the idea of Jesus. If, if he is truth, then it'd be impossible for everything to be relative. Is that, would that be a fair assumption? Yeah. So um, a Christian postmodern, by the very fact that they believe that God is Lord, God is the creator, the triune God is the creator. um, You know, they have their, their proclamation of that, is ontologically realist 
they are saying that there is at least one reality that exists apart from what I believe about it. We would call that reality God. And that um, we don't make Jesus or God whatever we want them to be. Mm -hmm. There is a reality about God, truth about God that we need to receive as divine gift. In that way, we are also epistemologically realist. We don't create knowledge for ourselves in any way possible Um, or in every way possible. Sorry. So then in general, especially, well, let's not talk about in general. Let's talk about the Christian postmodernist because I think that that actually is a better focus. So in general, we would not say that a Christian postmodernist believes that any truth, like that your truth is truth. That's a, that's a reductionist statement. Not even Christian postmodernists. I don't really know any non-Christian postmodernists worth their salt who really say that, except for maybe somebody <laughs> like Stanley Fish, except Stanley Fish was not a philosopher either. So it seems like, like relativistic, like uh, nihilistically relativist mm-hmm. uh, postmoderns are not really philosophers. They haven't really thought through. They, they, they want this to be true. And so that that's what they're feeding off of. And so then the, um, the pop postmodernism that that would say that, because you know we do see that in the world that this is my truth. They're they're missing some of the basics, the epistemological basics that exist in postmodernism. Yeah, and I would say that uh, in that way they are being modernist because modernist was about. Um, the, the individual mind, individual reason, uh, having the ability to arrive at something like absolute truth. So you don't need community. You don't need context. It's one's individual mind uh, uh, having the capability to, uh, to arrive at absolute knowledge. Therefore, then now you push that to, um, to its logical conclusion, and you have now each individual person arriving at their truth as they discover it right because in in its extreme version modernism eliminates the need for community right right so yeah something that i said in conversation probably two years ago now um about about this whole modernism versus postmodernism thing um was i said that uh, personal truth is a natural outworking of modernity's emphasis on autonomy would that be an accurate statement am i completely wrong because i hadn't i hadn't read as much of james smith at that point no say yes say yes we need him to be completely wrong just go with <laughs> go with he's completely wrong uh, maybe a relativist can, can say that <laughs> put on your relative hat, hat, hat for just a second he needs to be wrong this is important <laughs> But it, I mean, autonomy, and this is my kind of reformed uh, background coming out, autonomy, which is a sin of modernity, was itself also the sin in the garden. Mm-hmm. It was to hear a different voice and to say what I believe to be true. It, it, was, it, was, a, it was a battle of authority. I'm going to tell myself that I'm going to be like God. I'm going to uh, determine what is good and evil, you know. Um, it's not a, 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 it was not a submission to a divine authority. 
basically saying my knowledge of good and evil is going to rely on faith on what God tells me and who God is, but it's to say, no, I'm going to know it. I'm going to be the divine king and queen. Um, and I would say modernity is, it has rediscovered that sin and intensified it. Again, it starts with their um, total trust in human reason. And here's the thing, like this has a gravely impacted uh, the church in, in several sectors, several ways. Um, one, if reason is important, it, it impacts what discipleship ought to look like. How do you, how do you disciple people? Well, if we are primarily, what it means to be uh, truly human is to be a rational being, because that's how we get to the knowledge of God. Well, then how do you disciple people? You get rid of liturgy. Give them knowledge. Yeah. Give them knowledge. You do Bible studies. You do um, long sermons, you know, um, you get rid of things of the body. So you get rid of the traditional liturgies, you know, the, and the kneeling and the standing and the candles. and whatnot. We don't need all that. We don't need things that engage the body because we're the body doesn't matter. Just like Descartes said, we are essentially thinking things mm -hmm. and that the body is just, you know, just an appendage, an unfortunate appendage. Certainly not made in the image of God. That that's just silly. Something that you talk about in your book is that Pentecostalism, to a certain extent, is a corrective of that disembodied theology. Yeah, indeed. Um, we, can, we can just look at our liturgical existence. And indeed, it is a liturgical uh, um, existence because liturgy is just this, this um, formative practice that shapes us in certain ways. Um, and, and Christian liturgy is, are formative practices that, um, that form the community toward the knowledge of God. Um, and then sacramental liturgy, then it would say that it's, it, these are formative practices that shape the community for the knowledge of God by, through receiving God's presence through the liturgy. Um, now, understood that way, then... Pentecostal worship and existence is itself liturgical and it's itself sacramental because like mm -hmm. when, when you're at a, when we're at a, uh, uh, an assembly of God um, uh, church or, or, you know, Pentecostal church, and it's actually, you know, Pentecostal and not evangelical, <laughs> you know, or non-denominational in their worship and you hear uh, a tongue and an interpretation, like what happens there might have been music playing. There might have been people sing, but everyone gets quiet. Why? Because that's a sacramental moment. God's presence, they recognize that God's presence is there speaking. And it's an interpretation. It's a communal thing. Sometimes the, the, the person who spoke in tongues has the interpretation, but oftentimes it's somebody else who interprets. Yep. It's a, it's a mm -hmm. communal thing. And it, this is a liturgy. This is something that we do. And we recognize in that moment that God is present in us, present in our lives, that God speaks to us now. God cares about what we do now. God cares about how we live out this world, uh, in this world now. And this is a liturgical moment that forms us to have this, and once again, a pre-modern enchanted view that yeah. God still speaks. And that's just, so that's just one practice in uh, Pentecostal worship. We can talk about 
uh, healing, a laying on of hands. Right? We do that regularly. Mm-hmm. It's a liturgy. Going to the altar, getting down on our knees, on our faces, falling out. All of these things shape our knowledge about our worldview, about God's presence and how we are to act in God's presence and how we are. And it, it, it kind of normalizes uh, supernaturalism into the natural life so that like postmodernism that uh, blurs the line between the subject and the object, it blurs the line between nature and supernature so that nature becomes enchanted once again. Mm, so good. So before we go on, I'd like to uh, ask one last question about autonomy, and we're going to talk about how uh, modernism affected the January 6th riots. So let's go ahead and go there next. Uh, if you if you want me to cut this question out, I can pull it out. Uh, sorry, sorry, that was just too funny. When you were talking about it, I was like, "Yep, yep, I know where that went." See, I've seen the end of that story. Yeah, yeah, I I am in Florida. <laughs> it ends in the purest form of patriotism. God bless America. So the other thing, like. We've had a really great conversation here about postmodernism and all of that, and I think that's valuable, and I think that's part of the conversation that we're missing. Uh, but a big part of the book is taking postmodernism and Pentecostalism and having that engage with planting as reformed epistemology, um, which we, we're not going to necessarily need to go there because there's like a lot of pretext to like then explain Alving a, planting as. Uh, a reformed epistemology, what that is, properly basic beliefs and all of that. Uh, but as as somebody who's read those things, um, while I was working on my MA program doing a uh, ethics class, which was more just a philosophy class, because we barely actually talked about ethics, um, which is how I prefer it. Um, <laughs> we, we talked a lot about like planting as reformed epistemology, and throughout like my discussion board posts and things, I kept referencing that this feels a lot like what Jamie Smith is doing in Who's Afraid of the Postmodern. Um, and I, I just want to say that I appreciate somebody writing the book that I thought should be written as I was writing discussion board posts three years ago. Well, I wish I could have transferred myself back time traveled three years ago and said, here, use my book. You've got the answer, no. Um, I mean, it, it, it didn't exist yet, but it needed to because the things that Planting It talks about, proper basicality, um, the the idea that the Holy Spirit gives witness um, to the believer, all of those things is the enchanted pre-modern worldview given in a modernistic lens. And I think that the two go together a lot better than our Reformed bros want to say yeah and, and and actually it's because it's reformed epistemology like the you know it's the reformed who have sometimes or oftentimes pushed back against um what's called natural theology or forms of apologetics so you don't need that i mean yeah it's helpful um often it's helpful for for uh um defeating defeaters or or, or um arguing against challenges to Christian belief, um, which also has a positive value for perhaps a doubting Christian who might read this and be like, oh, you know what? No, I, my doubt has been answered. You know, I, I, my, my faith has been, has been strengthened and whatnot. But 
uh, Reformed epistemology and many Reformed theologians have argued that we have this innate knowledge of God, the sensus divinitatis, a sense of the divine, uh, this knowledge of God that has been implanted in us. And therefore, we don't need arguments or evidence to mm -hmm. justify that my belief is knowledge. But by merely having that belief, it's what's called warranted, and therefore it is knowledge. And, and yeah. you know, they, I think uh, Plantinga and other reformed epistemologists, I think, argue persuasively that many of our beliefs are properly basic. Um, mm -hmm. There are, I mean, the, the classic example is that we can't argue uh, we can't uh, we can't give a certain argument that the world exists longer than five minutes ago. Like mm -hmm. in a non-circular way, how can you prove that? Right? You just you believe, but it would be the it would be the the skeptic who questions the 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 length of the existence of reality. Who's who's the weirdo in a way? Than the one who just says, "No, I you know I'm pretty I'm I'm pretty sure that my memory of what what I was doing 10 minutes ago is correct. And I know what I did 10 minutes ago, which was probably crack jokes about crocodiles. <laughs> I was there for that. You just gave me a new conversation to bring up <laughs> at 11 o'clock at night with friends. Yeah. Or, or the, or the belief that you have a, a, a mind like mine, that you're not some sort of sophisticated robot. I, I love Battlestar Galactica. It's the greatest TV show ever and the greatest board game ever. Boom. Takes like three to five hours. They discontinued it. It's, tra it's a travesty. Anyway, um, the premise of, of, of Battlestar Galactica is that these, these uh, robots called Cylons um, advance their technology enough that these newer models of Cylons were basically humanoids and you couldn't really tell whether they were robots or not, or not, and so we can we can we can ask the question like, how do I know that you are not some sophisticated robot? I could maybe kidnap you, and I can cut up your skull and look through and see a brain, but the brain is not the mind. You know, they're different. Mm -hmm. um, but it would. But given that, if I say, well, I can't believe Matt that you have a mind until you can prove to me by some sophisticated argument or evidence that you have a mind that I'm not going to I'm not going to believe it I'm the I'm the weirdo right you know what I mean so reformed epistemology is saying as long as your um your cognitive powers the faculties um are working uh properly as it is designed you know um and it's uh, 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 successfully aimed at truth, then the, the belief that that cognitive faculty uh, produced is itself warranted, that it itself is knowledge without having to have um, evidence or arguments. And so when a Pentecostal says, I believe or I know that God spoke to me, we can say, yeah, we don't, you don't have to give an argument that God spoke to you. Like you, you know that God spoke to you. So instead of I think, therefore I am, it's I believe, therefore it is. Well, no, I, I, that would be relativistic. <laughs> Listen, you're putting the cart before the horse. Instead of I think, therefore I am, it's I am, therefore what I see is probably real. I am, therefore I think. 
No, no. You can you can be without thinking. I don't. Oh, now that's that is a philosophical question. I don't know if a person can be without thinking. Yeah, I I would say maybe if we're gonna use that kind of problematic um, <laughs> reduction. Yeah, maybe from a Christian perspective. I mean, if, I don't think we ought to place it. I don't think we ought to make it um, based on knowledge. Again, that would what's foundational is not knowledge. That's modernist. Yep. So maybe from a Christian perspective, it would be like, I am loved, therefore I am, because we are the byproduct, or not the byproduct, we are the, we, I don't even want to say the word product. Man, that was, that was really James Smith right there. That was like pure, Yoon Shin is just channeling Jimmy Smith and saying, here we go. <laughs> you know, I don't really have Twitter. I mean, I have a Twitter account, and but I never use it. I haven't been on there for in years. So sometimes I, I guess from reactions, I think I say something profound. But when I say it, I don't think I'm saying anything profound. So I guess that's, I'm, I'm glad that you guys think it was good. It was the way you said it, the the love, like it was just pure everything. I just expect it to come out of Jimmy Smith's mouth. Like just as soon as you said it, I was like, yeah, I've read that book. <laughs> I, I, you expect to find that quote and you are what you love. Like you just think if I go turn there, I'm going to find that quote. It's as natural as unicorns pooping out rainbow. All right. Let me, let me hit our transition music and we can move on to our tweet. Oh my goodness. Are you ready for this, ladies and gentlemen? No, I'm not, because I don't know which direction you're taking this. <sighs> All right. So, Yoon, here's here's the rules. You get to read the tweet because you're uh you're the newest guest. Or the sorry, the newest host. Matt never lets us know what it is ahead of time. So we get to respond to it in the moment. It's so much fun. I'm gonna put it in the chat. Here we go. Okay, so so, um, oh, man. I think if you just read the top portion, we can fill in the bottom portion. If you just read the actual tweet. Here comes the tweet. Okay. This says I wasn't able to guess the SBC Wordle. So real quick, does that, everyone here knows what Wordle is? You, are you, are you familiar? I have no clue what Wordle is. <laughs> Okay, no, that's great. The other, the other some of us know about it because we've talked about it before. So we're we're at a distinct advantage. So Wordle is a game where also we're nice and young. You get five, you get six chances to guess a five letter word. They tell you, oh, this is in the right place. This isn't in the right place. This word's not part of it. Okay, so that's normal. Um, that's that's Wordle. It it got sold for uh, um, seven figures to the New York Times early this year. Some random guy wrote the JavaScript. Sold it for over a million dollars. Isn't it every programmer's dream to to do something for your friend that earns you a million dollars from the New York Times? So some, something so simple as that. Wow. Right. And it's the word list is already created. Like they, you know, he, he did all this beforehand. So that's where we're at. But of course, as something hits the mainstream, what does Christian culture have to do? Ruin it. Co-opt it. Co-opt it. Well, so... SBC22.net will get you the SBC Wordle. I'm doing it right now. It's not Jesus, so already it's sinful. <laughs> it's it's five letters. Like, is that not what, what it should be? 
And of course, there's been a lot of there's been a proliferation of that. There's been Nerdle, which I think is a longer word. There's been the the Harry Potter Wordle, which uh, which Rachel does not ever do because she's a good Christian. Um, there's what do you mean she doesn't ever do it? She literally couldn't see one of the most obvious choices the other day. Texted it to us, and I was able to immediately know what it was. That was really hilarious. There's Quartle. So have you guys seen Quartle? Quartle is the one where you you play Wordle, but it's four games at once, and so you get up to nine tries. Yeah, it's 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 a different level of intensity. So this one, uh, Jaron Sainsbury decided to try the SPC Wordle, and the words he tried that weren't the answer to the SPC twenty two Wordle were uh, abuse, power, white, Trump, elect, and stole. And I just thought this was fitting because we talked about Wordle and Beth doing it the other day, uh, Auntie Beth. And uh, this was just the fact that the SBC has done it at all. And is this SBC standing for the Southern Baptist Convention? Yes. You know, yes. But do I don't know that the SBC is doing it. Oh, OK. OK. <laughs> just tongue in cheek. It says how to play. This is a special adaptation of the famous word guessing game designed to get you ready and excited each day before the SBC 2022 annual meeting in Anaheim. And it has a link to sbcannualmeeting.net. All the words in this game are related to the categories of church culture, SBC polity and entities, Bible books, annual meeting lingo, or California tourism. So I'm sure that somebody... Why California? Because they're in Anaheim. Yeah, like get this. Now, what what does what does the word count have to do with this though? Wait, is that it? Uh, votes. They're counting the votes. Caleb, come on. Ah, ah. Okay. It's a parliamentarian joke. Oh, my motion. My motion is in order. Well, that was stupid. I don't know if it's actually done by the SPC, but it's not important right now. I just thought this was hilarious. It's it's. I I saw it. I think I saw the retweet last night, and I laughed really, really hard. There were a few options, but that one was the one that, that got me the most. Yeah, I don't I don't really have any thoughts on this. We've talked about, I feel like we've talked about the SBC enough to, to fill a year's podcast. Oh, for sure. This is just a, they've made a Wordle. Like, <laughs> like, what, what, this is just like, your friends asking you what uh what who are your favorite rappers and you're like well i mean if you like eminem i know this guy named toby mac (laughs) it's like all right buddy green day what about reliant k (laughs) wow are they still around (laughs) oh yeah they're touring right now they were here in minneapolis and i didn't go see them and i'm still sad about it uh my wife and i we almost uh went Went to go see the one in Minneapolis or uh, a Wisconsin place. Milwaukee? Is that a place? I didn't know uh, child marriages was legal over there. (laughs) 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 It's better that he's coughing. Well, there you go. SBC22.net will give you the SBC22 wordle and uh, you, you can feel however you want about it. I think this is one of those things that I cannot stand much in the same way of uh, cards Christians like, uh, which is a youth group version of Cards Against Humanity, which I'm so sorry, the friends that 
Which, we should be clear, Cards Against Humanity is an adult version of Apples to Apples, which made the game first. Which is my least favorite game of all time. I just, that's fine. I just want to say, like, originally it was a youth group appropriate game, and then Cards Against Humanity came out, and then we had to make another version to be youth group appropriate again. But with, like, youth group as the butt of the joke. It's like, I, I can't stand it. And I apologize to the few friends who do listen to this who do enjoy that game. Uh, I won't play it with you. I hate those games. I think they're stupid. But the appropriation of cultural things to make them relevant to the church, why don't we just make our own things? Yeah, well, it's so, it's so reactive. Um, one, because I think what Protestantism has done is uh, seen... Christian imagination and Christian aesthetics as something um, dangerous, perhaps. Mm. Uh, they saw the abuses of the Catholic Church, and back then, you know, all art was was uh, commissioned by the church. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe not all art, but uh, many of the great arts were commissioned by the church. The church was at the forefront of art, but um, you know, Protestantism has turned kind of art. Looked at things like. Uh, uses of icons and whatnot in, in the church and, and saw that as perhaps idolatrous and whatnot. And so uh, Protestant churches can, especially in our tradition, tend to be very plain, maybe, you know, almost like a warehouse and whatnot. Um, and because we're pragmatic and uh, secret sensitive, uh, our, the art that we produce and some, some of the music is very beautiful, but it's still very much, the style is very much copied, secular music and whatnot. Now this also, I mean, it gets complicated. Uh, we don't have time, enough time for that uh, to go too deep into it. But of course, now then we get into the uh, relationship between general revelation, uh, special revelation, like, and so one, we don't want to say, well, Christians ought to create everything because we know what true art is. We know what true beauty is. Well, not really, because God's revelation of truth and be- uh, of, of beauty is also within uh, all of creation in, in non-Christian cultures as well. So it shouldn't be, on one hand, just be uh, uh, purely reactive or on the other hand and say, we're going to create everything and we're going to uh, ignore anything that is non-Christian because that's all demonic and sinful and it's going to lead our children astray or whatnot. But um, from a Pentecostal perspective, we could perhaps say that the Holy Spirit uh, reveals uh, the spirit self uh, wherever and speaks uh, through everywhere. Um, And therefore what we need to do is uh, develop discernment to be able to hear the spirit and be able to, um, uh, uh, interact with God's voice in the presence of the other to create things that are new, you know, um, so that we create a more harmonious continuity with the non-Christian world rather than having this um, us versus them or us over there, uh, us over here, us, uh, them over there mentality. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to our last segment here. I don't have a news story. Are we talking about war? Yeah, I don't I don't have a single news story because this podcast doesn't come out for an uh, entire week. Um, and by then, whatever news article I would say about 
Russia invading Ukraine um, will be outdated. Sir, they're not invading Ukraine. They're occupying independent territory. Uh, I'm pretty sure that once you go for Kiev, you're no longer occupying independent territory. They're launching a special militarization exercise. They're not occupying it. They're just, it's a preemptive strike for their occupation. They are freeing the Ukrainians from themselves. Right. They're they're bringing freedom to two areas of Ukraine. And to do that, they have to attack the capital. Come on, Caleb. Get it together. Could we uh, actually talk a little bit about war as this segment? Yeah. I mean, I would love to. That's the idea. They just... Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we, we are. We are. This is... I just don't have an article because whatever article, specific article I post is going to be really old in a week. And you have to know, we use, we use sarcasm and um, uh, satire to a certain extent to, to make salient points. And I would like to lead off, if I may, in saying that at some level, it feels a little hypocritical for the United States to be condemning another country invading them and giving them freedom i listen i'm not saying these two situations are equal but at some point it's really hard for us to stand up and say you shouldn't do that matt i'm just i'm i'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that the two aren't equal what we did is probably worse (laughs) from from what i understand of the you think you think they actually had a standing government and one that worked and was fairly healthy at, at that point? Yeah. You know, like everyone had electricity and everyone went to college and, you know, well, not the girls had a decent economy. So I went on Reddit, which I don't I don't normally do. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I recommend against. I know sometimes it's the easiest place to find uh, little tidbits here and there, but there are some big threads right now about. Russian citizens posting about their views of what's going on over there. Specifically asking about the propaganda that's being said. And it is very concerning how American it sounds. Well, the thing, you know why it sounds un-American? Why? Because the propaganda in America is Russian. Like this isn't, this isn't something that's American. It's Russian propaganda influenced the 2016 election more than we can ever actually probably know. And because we know that, we know that the propaganda that Putin is using right now in his country and in the in the Ukraine is very specifically Russian propaganda. Like this, Matt, I think that you're overstating it because part of it is this is also they've shaped their sound of their propaganda to be like American propaganda in the early 2000s. Yes. Um, So that way, when the U.N. looks at what's happening here. Russia can say, well, we're just doing what the Americans did. So I think it's, I think it's both. I think it's both. We, it, our propaganda has been shaped by Russian propaganda. But also, the language that the Russian government is using is intentionally made to sound like us. I hear what you're saying. So guys, I have to leave soon because I have an event to go set up. But let me, uh, I would like to say, regarding, I, I agree what, with what you're saying um, about uh, the hypocritical, hypocritical stance of the U.S. because we have been the most warmongering nation uh, in the 21st uh, century. 
Um, so, but instead of saying, well, you know, what's the role of Russia and America in international politics? Maybe this, we could take this as a time for self-reflection. Yeah. It's, it's so easy to see ourselves, again, stories, narratives, and the, the affections that, that it draws. It's so easy to see ourselves, place ourselves as the protagonists in the story. We're always Israel. We're never the Philistines. Mm-hmm. We're never the, we're always the disciples and the forces of Jesus and good rather than the Pharisees, the teachers of the law and the Sadducees. We're always, we're always Peter on, uh, on Pentecost Sunday and never Peter on Good Friday. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I, I think uh, the posture that we ought to take is one of kenosis of self-emptying to take on the, the form of a servant and say, you know, may you increase, may I decrease, and always be self-reflective and, and, and ask ourselves, where have I and we have gone wrong? And how can we listen to God's voice uh, in the different avenues that God speaks, whether it's through scripture, through other people, through the still small voice, and ask God to open up ourselves to us, that God will read us. So if it just says we read a book and say, oh, wow, this is a great story, or wow, this is a tragic story, whatnot. When God reads us, what is God reading? And I hope that our reading of ourselves will be faithful so that we don't always see ourselves as a protagonist when we're not. I believe it was Stanley Harawas who argued that war and the United States cannot be divorced. Yeah. Like the DNA of America, of North America, of U.S., is tied to violence of war. Mm-hmm. Beginning from our independence all the way to now. If so, and if, if we, you know, I'm not a pacifist. Um, I'm a just war theorist. But even then, we have to ask ourselves, have we been just in the use of violence? Have we been the city on a hill that we like? to see ourselves as this idea of manifest destiny. And I would say we have failed more than we have been faithful. Again, perspective, right? It's not universal. It's a pers- We've got to have the right perspective. That's postmodern. Well, I don't like it. I want to tell them they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Matt, here's the issue. Here's the issue. You want to tell other people that they're wrong. But Correct. we are wrong as nope. much, if not more than them. Never wrong. America first. <laughs> no, I totally agree. And the, and it's the, the problem, again, the problem is that we, we don't want to be introspective. We want this to be fixed quickly. And we, and so many people want it to be fixed quickly without actually doing anything. And the, the, the emotional struggle to admit that we are wrong, we could be wrong, is a character flaw. This is why this is what it's, you know, Hebraic thought is a virtue tradition. Like God does not just merely want to give us propositional knowledge and propositional truth. God desires to shape us into a certain type of people. And this shaping doesn't merely come through reason, through knowing, coming to know trivial facts or even objective truth. Change comes by enacting change in our embodied lives. And so if we are not will, if we are uncomfortable or even resistant to change or even to humility, if we're resistant to hear 
to, to possibly entertain the, the possibility that we might be wrong, we have to ask ourselves, what has transpired in our lives up to now that even the entertaining of our, uh, the possibility of our wrongness, um, our failure is, is not a possibility. Like, well, I'm wondering if there's a fear that if we, if we get to that point, we will then ask, why is what Russia is doing wrong? Um, and that we may not like the intro, the, the introspection is the wrong word, but the inspection, we might not like the answers to the inspection of is what Russia is doing wrong because they, there are people who could justify it. Right. But yeah, we need to do the inspection, but it's easier for us to not do the deep work, the deep brain work and to have a knee jerk reaction of what they're doing is wrong without regards to ourselves or even an investigation of the current action. My colleagues are going to get mad at me. I have a honor society meeting that I have to get ready for. Enjoy yourself. Thank you so much for being here. We appreciate it greatly. Yeah. Yeah. It was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. It'll, it'll come out a week from today. Um, I'll send you a link when it comes out. Perfect. Cool. All right. Thanks everybody. See ya. Have a good one. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Ian. What were you going to say? What was I going to say? Well, when you look at uh, Vladimir Putin's speech, his hour-long speech, um, before he did anything, and he did this whole history lesson on the history of Ukraine, none of what he said was wrong. Mm -hmm. It was all truth. All of his facts, every bit of it, is 100% true. Yep. And that's, that's the part that, like, should make us pause. I still don't think that they should, like, invade Ukraine. Right. That seems like an obvious answer. But in their, in their mind, they are perfectly justified in doing what they're doing. Un- unlike Yoon, I'm not a just war theorist. I'm a pacifist. And so I'm like, we should, we should not be killing people in war in general pretty much ever. Like, I think that maybe to stop military act, to, to prevent killing, maybe it's fine sometimes. But generally, we should we should be avoiding that whenever possible. We should send them to the island of perpetual tickling. But his his facts his facts aren't wrong. Ukraine used to be all part of Russia until communism, and so the idea of if Ukraine is trying to decommunize, to truly decommunize Ukraine, means it should be go back to be part of Russia. Like that's not wrong. And that's the problem. It's crazy, but it's not wrong. <laughs> it's very very uncomfortable yes well okay and it, it it's super weird um it's weird to think that if this current non-communist quote-unquote russia um now existed back during like the real red scare era uh america would be like yeah russia decommunize them thanks for listening to the barely safe podcast make sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app you can find more episodes links and show notes and merch at barely safe podcast.com <laughs>